rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Hello, this is Bob Hutchins coming to you again for another episode of Rumors of Grace. And today I am sitting across the silver table from Mrs. Jennifer Black. We're here in Franklin and a little bit about Jennifer. I'm really excited about uh, this interview today because I met Jennifer uh, about a month and a half ago at an event that she was speaking about a book she had written about a topic that we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to save that uh, for later on in the conversation. But let me introduce Jennifer here with her bio uh, to give you a little bit of a background to set up our conversation today. Jenny Black is the founder of Media Trauma Care. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of Tennessee and runs a private practice here in Franklin. She specializes in training and education about how mental health is impacted by our use of media. Her true work is to experience life as directly as possible and write and teach about what she learns. She's married to her high school sweetheart for 25 years, and they're enjoying their first few months of being empty nesters. She's the author of two books, Unwritten Travels, A Self-Guided Discovery Journal, and Inner Technology, How to Be Human in a Digital World. So is it Jenny or Jennifer? What do you prefer? Jenny. Okay. Jenny, Jenny. welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bob. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited about this. Um, Let's start from the beginning. Who is Jenny Black? Uh, Are you a native Tennessean or? I was born and raised in Texas. Oh, wow. I was born in West Texas, Mm. raised in San Antonio, and then moved here when I was 15 years old. Moved to Brentwood, actually, Mm. and met my husband my first day of school. At 15? At 15. Wow. 15. That's amazing. So high school sweethearts, and did you go to college together? We did. I followed him to college. We went to Western Kentucky. Okay. Did you do your bachelor's and master's there? Just my bachelor's. Okay. Okay. And then um, what was was home life like growing up in Texas and then Tennessee? Are you the head of siblings? Yes. I'm the oldest of three and the oldest of about... I don't, I've lost count, 40-something cousins so, oh my gosh. Um, on both sides of my family. My family is insanely um, creative, um, musical geniuses. I'm the only one in my family who doesn't have a music, really? musical career or a musical background in mm. some way. So your siblings do and your, yes, okay. My parents and all my aunts and uncles and all my cousins. And so that's how we ended up in Music City. Okay. But my parents were the creators of the very first children's Bible that was ever published. Oh, okay. It's called the Beginner's Bible. Mm-hmm. And that was my childhood, was them creating it, them selling it, them working with publishers, publishers working with them. It was kind of, I always say it was like the fourth child in our family. Mm. And um, I, my parents were always very counterculture. So I was homeschooled starting in fourth grade before homeschool was a thing anyone had Mm -hmm. ever heard of. So I had a lot of experience. Our home life was always going to be different than what was happening with everybody else. And what was that like? Did you like being homeschooled? Um, What was your experience? Yeah, I liked being homeschooled a lot. I'm a really social person and I did miss the school 
eventually, like the school days and getting to see my friends. So I homeschooled fourth, fifth, sixth grade, then went back to private school when I was in eighth grade. Okay. And really, really loved kind of what I learned about myself. I think I read every book that was possible to read that was approved by homeschool families. <laughs> approved. <laughs> um, during that time. But by the time I got back to school, I was sad when the weekend came because I was like, I'm not going to see anybody this weekend. Mm. So I really feel like I got a very complete education. Mm. That's great. That's great. And I assume your siblings were homeschooled as well. Um, My sister, I don't think, was ever homeschooled. She's nine years younger than I am, but my brother and I were. And that was uh, both in Texas and in Tennessee? or All in Texas. When you moved here, you went right into a a school situation. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me about that. What was your high school life like? Was it a positive experience for yeah, you? Yeah, it was. I was always in theater, mm-hmm. and I'm not a performer, but I love being a part of the, the group experience and the mm-hmm. musicals, and most of my friends were in the musicals, so that's how I got to spend time with them. It was just a very positive fun experience. I mm-hmm. struggled academically. Academics were always hard for me. So hard, I didn't think I would ever be able to become a therapist because I couldn't <laughs> go to any more school. Um, but I had really great social exper- experiences in high school. Mm. So you met your future husband and you dated through high school and you went, then you went off to Western mm-hmm. Kentucky. Um, I, I, obviously, since your parents are the, the creators of the Beginner's Bible, Faith was a very big part of your life growing Huge. up. Okay. Huge part. It was a big part of my parents' life in reality. But also I was just kind of innately a very religious person. Like I always had a secret fantasy of being a nun. You know, that was my idea <laughs> of if I had another life. So I I really liked I liked religion and mm-hmm. I liked figuring out all the things that I could do to possibly how I, how I could be God's favorite. <laughs> that's interesting. That, that's an interesting concept to say I was always innately religious or innately. Did you, when you were a little girl, did you dream of uh, being, like you said, being a nun? Was, um, was the reality of something bigger than yourself and a spiritual reality something that was always some, that was very real to you? Very real to me. Mm-hmm. Very real to me. And my parents had a pretty significant, they, they grew up in a, a very strict religious home and had some experiences with God outside of that that made their spiritual lives very real. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, we didn't talk about God like an idea. It was really like, okay, I'm, I'm scared or I'm angry or I want something. And it was all like, okay, God's the one who's providing for you. So it was very practical. Mm, interesting. So you went off to WKU, Western Kentucky, um, and then I'm assuming, what, what was your undergrad in? Psychology okay. and communications. Did you always know you wanted to be a therapist or a counselor? Yeah, but this is back in like the late 80s, early 90s, and being a therapist was not even a real thing. <laughs> like people kind of looked at me funny, just that it wasn't a real job. It was, that was more in a time and place, which many places are still this way, mm. where it's like, you just listen to people, you just talk about your problems. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all, all the, most people's awareness of that was like what Kramer on TV or maybe uh, Bob Newhart yep. or yeah. <laughs> something like that. But it wasn't <laughs> something that you really um, nobody went to. A no, therapist. the average person did had no yeah. experience with that. That's interesting. 
So what what was your draw to that? I mean, okay, you you grew up, you're innately uh, aware of the spiritual world, um, grew up in a home that seems to be very uh, open and, and encouraging of that. And then was it a natural thing for you to to want to be a therapist or a counselor? You didn't see it modeled necessarily, no, right? No, I didn't. I, it was just who I was in mm. all the ways a big sister who's very religious could be. <laughs> I liked talking about people's problems and helping them mm. fix them. Um, it was a pretty big leap for me because our our family and and my own church and religious experience outside of my family was so biblically based. There was a lot of fear around getting into therapy and would there be other, you know, streams of knowledge that would contradict. Be, yes, or... that would contradict. And so it was a very big deal for me to say, I'm going to basically be looking for answers and explanations that are not biblical, mm-hmm. you know, meaning outside not, of right, right, having been what's found in the or, black and white, right, right, right. And how, did you find that? It was interesting. I went to Treveca Nazarene University for my master's degree, and most of my professors did have um, a Christian faith, but they were very adamant to teach from a place of you're, we're not teaching you how to be Christian counselors. Like we're giving you as broad of a experience as you could have. Mm-hmm. And um, that was really helpful for me, especially as I was just sort of spreading my wings and exploring outside of a pretty narrow religious perspective. That was a, it was a nice grace. That was a nice grace for me um, to feel like, oh, oh, at least they are Christians, you know. Um, but the more that I have done this work, and I would say even my first several years in therapy was kind of sorting through what these things I believed in were true and what needed to fall away. Mm. And my passion just really became about where did the spiritual meet with this, these therapeutic, you know, interventions or understandings. And the more work I do, the truth is the truth is the truth is the right. truth. I mean, it's you, and it's often found in scripture. Mm. Like I'll be like, Oh, this is what it means. Like love casts out all fears, mm. you know, like the research we're doing on what happens in the brain when you're in a state of love and how you can't access fear. It's like, I memorized that Bible verse, you know? Mm. So I feel like I've kind of gotten to loop around and experience um, the Bible in particular from a whole new vantage point. Mm. And those familiar um, verses or scriptures take on deeper and unique meanings now in yes. ways that maybe you yes. didn't quite grasp before. Yeah, which the older I get, the the more I think, mm. how could you? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the that's the beauty that my listeners get tired of hearing this because I always quote uh, Richard Rohr on this. He talks about the idea of God and divinity and whatever you uh, call um, God, uh, that he is not only uh, unknowable, but also simultaneously infinitely knowable, meaning that you can know him. Um, oh, there is no end to the depths of that knowledge. And I'm always reminded of that when I'm sitting across the table talking from, to people like you who say, uh, and I hear, you know, I, as I get older, I'm learning and I'm seeing that this in a new perspective or in a deeper perspective or... Um, 
this this passage or this experience or or this thing that I call uh, the spiritual journey has taken on a whole new meaning for me. And I just keep reminding of that saying in the back of my head of how this infinitely knowable, like there's no depth to it. There's no end to the knowledge of it. I find that fascinating. It is. And it, and I've experienced it. I mean, when you say it, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm. So in your practice, um, you know, you go from, well, let, let's back up. You go to Western Kentucky. Did you guys get married during that time or after that? Or? Yes, we got married in college. Okay. And you uh, came back to, to Nashville? We moved back to Nashville. My husband got a job teaching here. Moved back here, and I, I got a job at a church. Mm. So I was doing women's and children's ministry. He was teaching middle school and high school. Perfect jobs for mm-hmm. being fresh out of college. Mm-hmm. And uh, then soon after that, we had our kids. And my son is now 20. My daughter's 18. And when they went when my son went to kindergarten and my daughter went to preschool, I went back and got my master's in marriage and family therapy. And so you, you get your master's, uh, you're working at a church on and off. I don't know if during how long that lasted, but um, did you immediately go into private practice or how did that all unfold? Well, I actually, I did my internship at a place called the Refuge Center for Counseling, mm-hmm. which is important to me because they're the ones that have um, partnered with me in the book that just got published. And that's, that was an amazing, amazing experience. And right out of that internship started a private practice. Okay. And what, ha- uh, you know, in, in doing in therapy myself and, and other people, I know there's always kind of an angle or a specialty that, that counselors and therapists take. What, what is yours or what was yours? I know it has evolved over time. I, I think in the beginning it was this study of how to, how to meet the spiritual with the therapeutic. Mm. And that was, you know, this, this community is very churched. And right. so it was a pretty relevant. Local and of con- the Bible Belt. Yeah. Right. It continues to be a very relevant issue with my clients. You're, there's family of origin issues, and then there's like, I don't know what we call it. So it's not family of spirituality. You know, your church that community is as powerful as a family of origin for different reasons. So just kind of taking, I've done a lot of work with spiritual abuse and, um, and, and then abuse as a other people who are just trying to figure out my life isn't working the way that I thought it was going to work. If I did these things that I thought mm. I was supposed to do, that there was some promise at the end of that, that life hasn't delivered. And kind of finding where those two intersect. Wow. I can't even imagine some of the stories <laughs> that, that you have heard. Well, let's go there for a minute. Obviously, uh, client-patient privilege, we won't get into that. But specifically, what does that do to your own um, sense of somebody who's brought up from a child as being innately spiritual and it's always been, int- you're, you seem like a very intuitive person. What does that do to your own journey and formation over the years sitting across, um, you know, the couch from someone who's sharing um, maybe some of the destructive things that, that religion has brought on them or, or spirituality? Yeah, belief systems are really powerful. Mm. And when you have lived in a world where that you have 
kind of been programmed with this is the way things are supposed to be and this is the way you're supposed to be and things aren't that way and you can't be that way. There's a lot of symptoms that come from that. Mm. And when you don't know that your belief system can change and should change, you know, with your, as you engage with life at different places of loss or growth, um, when those beliefs stay the same, there's an incredible amount of depression, anxiety, um, shame, guilt. And a lot of times it's as simple as, do you want that? Do you want to hold on to that belief? Because you, you can let go of it. Is it almost like back to the Richard War thing of the two halves of life? Certain beliefs really contain us and hold us and have served us very well and getting to places where it's, it's time to let go of that. That belief is now impeding us from a new, maybe more full belief that could meet us where we are today. I have found in my own personal journey, um, and I've shared this openly several times on the podcast, that um, while holding on to those beliefs can produce the things that you mentioned, depression, despair, and anxiety, letting go of those beliefs can also do the same thing, <laughs> right? Yes. Like, okay, I'll, yes. wait a second. This I counted on this all my life, and I had some sort of event, usually, as he says, through great pain or great love. Mm-hmm. Um, you wake up one day and say, um, I didn't choose this. I'm not choosing not to believe, but my belief is gone in this system. Yeah. I yeah. just, it's no longer, it's no longer compelling. It's no longer true. And there's nothing I can do about it. Um, that can cause depression and anxiety and a sense of grief and loss of uh, a construct that was your identity for so long. Absolutely. It, it might, you might say it's like being born again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're, you feel like you're starting at ground zero. Right. With this life that you don't know the rules for it anymore. Do you, do you counsel with a lot of people like that? Yes. It's, that's, that I would say is probably the most prominent issue that I see. And a lot of it is just having, having a safe place, which, you know, obviously therapy is known for that, but doesn't have to be therapy. I mean, this is, you can just have a safe friend who will not judge you and let you unpack. I don't think I believe this anymore. I'm not sure about this. And those are hard to find. It's, it's scary too. Well, it's scary because, and and quite honestly, Jenny, it's why this podcast exists is providing safe places for people to share their stories, not so much for the people on the other side of the table, but for the person listening mm-hmm. that, that can say, oh, you know, I can listen to this privately and find out I'm questioning things and I'm going a different direction and I'm expanding in my belief systems. I'm not alone. Oh, there's people that feel the same way because I, I think that a lot of times when you are in a, uh, the Bible Belt or in structures like that, it can be, you can feel like you're very isolated and almost like you have to hide or uh, you feel like yeah. you'll be rejected, yes. which most of the time it's not true, but many of the times it is, right? Yeah. I was telling my husband, he's, he's into all these wonderful books that <laughs> I'm sure you talk about a lot on your podcast. And I was like, you know, I read those 14 years ago and I had to keep them secret. <laughs> <laughs> Like I'd try to bring up conversations with people and it was just like, yeah, we, we don't question those things. And I'm a questioner. Mm. I'm a questioner. And so I've been a very, um, 
I, I, in ways, a troublemaker, if, if not outside of myself, inside of myself. Mm. But I, I, you were talking about questioning the beliefs. An important part of pulling that apart for anyone who's listening and going through that is that a lot of times we have ideas of God very mixed in with other ideas. Mm. And pulling apart, like, could you let God be something other to you? And say what you experienced in your family of origin, what you experienced in that particular denomination, mm. and kind of seeing the systems for the flawed, you know, human expressions that they are, and having some space to be like, oh, you mean I could doubt the system and still give space to let God reveal who God is mm. to me? I feel like that's been really important for people. Do you sense or feel that that, um, I have an opinion on this and I'm going to keep my mouth shut, but I want to hear yours. Do you feel like that's uh, increasing that this new awareness, this um, awakening to a different belief system, rejecting the former one coming out of one box, going into another? Do you th- are you seeing more and more of that? Or I mean, so much. Yeah, so it's so not, much. I know it's an age-old thing that's been happening for thousands of years. But there's something happening in our culture um, that so much of it is second nature for the newer generation, the younger generation. But for those of us who are kind of crossing over from the mm-hmm. um, the evangelical subculture that was so prevalent in the 80s and 90s, and now um, I believe that that is shrinking rapidly. Yeah. Um, and now going, well, maybe there is a bigger way to do things. Maybe there is a different way to do things. Maybe um, my view and understanding of certainty was, is not so certain after all. Do you think that that's, that's happening more and more? I feel like I'm going to think of lots of good responses to this in the <laughs> middle of the night because <laughs> that's a big conversation. Sure. I mean, that's a big conversation. Well, let me say it this. Do you feel like people who are coming in your office with these big questions – are more today than they were 15 years ago. Yes, 100%. 100%. And I think when you speak to certainty, we we lived in a different time. And there were a lot more one plus one equals two in our reality. And we're losing certainty in a lot of spaces and places. You know, things don't, you don't follow, you're going through this with your kids and I'm going through it with mine. There's no direct path to a career which is a direct path to a lifelong relationship, which is a direct path. Mm-hmm. Like we're just seeing that, oh, there's not this way of living that works anymore. Mm. It's, it's kind of like every, there's a thousand paths for a thousand mm-hmm. people. And so I think that that's affecting religion greatly. Mm. And I would argue in good ways, some would argue mm-hmm. in bad, mm-hmm. uh, but what do you feel like, is is happening and i and i don't i'm not putting you on the spot but what do you think is happening culturally um generationally just as you step back as someone who's in this all the time and counseling with people just kind of generally is this a um is this a shift that you think is going on i know we're gonna this might be a great segue to go into uh, media and your study of that and what you've written on but do you have like a yeah. thesis of, of all this? I kind of, maybe. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what comes to my mind is that 
you you probably know that the public school system was started by the church. Mm-hmm. So how I don't know how many years ago that is. I'm not good with my history or dates. I just remember facts I like to keep mm-hmm. in my head. And that that perspective of thinking of whatever time in history that was, that the church was looking around and looking in the culture and seeing, oh, this is a need. These kids don't, they're not getting an education. We could educate them. That's what became Sunday school, which ultimately ended up being bought out by the government, which is now public school. And somewhere between then and now, my, my experience of churches, and this is generally speaking, there's always exceptions, is um, just a, a continually making the church a, a bigger entity, a more significant part of a person's life. And the people, you know, when you go to church, it's often so that you can now help this church be more of what this church right. wants to be. And I feel like that that, I, I don't know when it came to its end, when it wasn't delivering. You know, there must have been a time when that was really beneficial, creating this community. And now we're both able to find communities outside of the church and unable to find communities outside of the mm. church. Mm. So I know what my family has gone through is being a part of a congregation where it didn't seem like anybody was available to connect. Like everybody was just kind of almost punching their card doing, you know, we heard that great sermon, almost very consumer based. We, we got that. An exchange. An exchange. Yeah. And, um, when it stops delivering relationship and it stops serving the needs of the people that, as we know, are surprising us all the time, these new needs that are, making themselves known, um, it's losing its relevance. Mm. And also the fact that you can hear a thousand great sermons anytime you want to, right? Right, right. So we don't, we don't need the information like we once did. Yeah. And, and I want to be careful um, because I'm always reminded, especially from some of my guests over and over, is that um, I, there are so many good things about my upbringing and so many positive things that growing up in that construct um, has produced in me. It provided community. It provided um, a sense of belonging. It provided a, a path of, of, of not getting in trouble, <laughs> uh, yeah. although I did, but, but not, you know, it kept me out of, you know, bad situations and relationships and provided, created a person uh, for the most part um, who was able to walk a path um, that was healthy for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, and it brought me to where I am today without it, I wouldn't be here. So I want to, I want to look at it, uh, in the positive light, but I also don't want to be afraid to say, these are the areas that no longer serve me. And I think are actually detrimental to, to myself and other people that have been through the same thing. And I know, you know, we could talk about that all day long, but that, that's a good segue into, um, what made you want to go into the media area? I know having kids yeah, is yeah. the big thing, but talk to me it about that. It is now. So, okay, about, I was just trying to do the math, getting ready for this interview. About five years ago, I took a sabbatical. I was just pretty classically burnt out and overwhelmed and all the things, the reasons people take a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. And I did a study of rest for 
really about a year. So I was literally resting and, you know, taking a break. But then also this is, I was following the treatment plan that I would give my clients when they were, you know, burnt out or grieving or whatever they needed. What is that treatment plan? So it would be just that kind of, I, I, I'm not liking the word self-care anymore, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's, the, it's the one we have to work with right now. We'll come up with a new one soon. But just getting enough sleep, taking yourself off of anything that you should be doing and keeping your list of what you have to do that day based on like what you literally have to do for that day. Um, so really staying very connected to whatever those basic needs are, you know, food, rest, um, laundry, you know, practical pieces. And during, during that year, I didn't work at all in terms of anything I was making money for. And we had sold a house and not bought a new one. So that kind of bought us a little bit of time. We lived in an apartment and I mean, like I said, I had prescribed this to many of Mm. my, you know, clients and, um, in my own experiences of it, I basically spent definitely the first 30 days just trying to be disciplined enough to not look at my phone. So I didn't get to do, like I had these images of reading these books and journaling and prayer walking and, you know, getting to meet with my mentors. Mm. And I just spent all of my energy managing my phone. Mm. And I was like, and again, this is five years ago. I didn't even know it was a thing. Mm-hmm. Like, and that started me realizing, oh, I can't rest unless this is powered off. Okay. I can't power this off if my kids are at school and they won't be able to reach me in case of an emergency, you know? And so I just ended up doing a ton of work around, is this a myth that we can rest? Like, that's how I was really feeling. Like it was just some pursuit that we, you know, need to get some good rest and it wasn't possible. And I was like, this can't not be possible. Like I must still have choices and avenues to be able to rest. So um, I worked on that for two years, like studied it, wrote about it, did retreats on it, this concept of, so it, it was this weird, here I am studying about rest and all along the way, I'm learning more and more about this tie that we have to our phones. At that point, I would have just called it to my phone, the world in my pocket. Mm-hmm. And um, then that season led me to studying work. Like it just started revealing, like, what do I, if I didn't work all this time, what is work and are we made to work? And what does work look like when it's birthed from a place of rest as opposed to from a place of, you know, striving and fear and consuming and all the things that keep us on that. Scarcity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then I was finding how more and more connected I was getting with just the concept of working deeply and doing my true work and kind of following my true calling. And once again, I was in this constant tug of war with my phone. Like I couldn't, concentrate and really dig into these projects that I wanted to make. And so quite strangely, all of my research came from that place. So now I'm almost completely saturated in the work of how, what I like to call our relationship to media, more personal media is maybe a better word for it than our phones or social media. Um, 
but basically how that's keeping us from being able to rest, to, mm. to get our basic needs met, separating us from those basic needs, and also really interfering with our ability to, to find our true work and participate in mm. that work, which I believe is one of the greatest privileges of being a human and like that we're made for it. And we receive this constant, that's where fulfillment comes from, you know, that spark and then the fulfillment of that spark. And if we're doing all of that through our devices, we're not getting the full, like we talk about the feedback loop with social media. It's this, okay, now I've got to get back and do it again. Mm. You know, I didn't, it didn't get fulfilled. So that's how I ended up Mm. getting obsessed with media. Do you, I have a theory that I'm developing with this and that's that, um, our, our wiring in our brain is constantly getting short-circuited because we are being told and being trained that, and, and you see it in media and the naysayers, and there, there's truth to it, are constantly telling you attention spans are getting smaller, kids can't pay attention, everything is a swipe, and everything you got to get someone's attention in marketing in three seconds or else you're gone. Everything is short little burst, you know, 140 characters. Meanwhile. The success of Netflix, the success of Disney Plus that just came out, the success of podcasts where people will sit and listen to this for an hour straight. Some podcasts go for three hours straight or more. What that tells me is people are waking up and saying, wait a second, I am wired and I long for and I will engage in long form story, narratives, um, all of those things. I will binge on something really good on Netflix for five, six, seven hours. I'll listen to a three-hour podcast. Why? Because that's how I'm wired. Um, that's how humans have always been. They we're you know story and narratives and engagements and art and music yeah. and movies. Yeah. And yet, we are we short-circuiting that when we get addicted to short bursts of information that don't give us any form of fulfillment of that. Um, we're longing for story and engagement, but it's a second it's gone and two seconds is gone. A heart alike. Oh, yeah. I got yeah. my burst. I'm gone. That reminds me of one of my friends is a young adult novelist mm-hmm. and she started writing. She got her first publish- publishing deal right about the same time that blogging was coming out. And at that point in time they want, and they may still, but they wanted writers to blog every week. And then once social media came out, you know, post every day. And she was like, do you want me to write a book? <laughs> like I can either write a book or I can blog every day, but I can't do both. Mm. And uh, so I, it makes me think that there are, there are different people, like that there are those who, if, if you are involved in the deep form work, it's very hard to be in the... 140 characters mm-hmm. or less, you know, unless you're taking from your deep work that day and putting it, mm-hmm. you know, into that format. Um, but when what I heard you say in that was, was also like the consuming, even though it's small bursts, it's so much of it, right. so many small bursts. And so what I hear in that... And they're I, all disconnected. Yeah, yeah. And when I think my, my um, vices are... Podcasts, audiobooks, and particular TV shows on Netflix. Like, I love a big, long, overarching mm-hmm. television show. 
And I can tell when I get into that mode where I'm just absorbing. I'm just taking in and taking in and taking in. And I think that our brains were made to take in and create something and put something back out, Mm. you know. And I can get stuck in just continuing to consume and learn. And that takes me back to the beginning of my um, sabbatical was realizing I had learned a lot. I knew a lot. Mm. And I didn't have enough time or margin in my life to put all these things that I knew into practice in my life. So, so what did you walk away from? Um, I mean, one of the, the keys that I heard there was that you learned that media, regardless of what it is, can keep us and consume us so much that it keeps us from our true work, our true calling, our true passion. Go a little bit deeper with that. Yeah. So if, um, have you heard about, uh, what is it called? A dopamine fast? No. So I don't know who made the, I mean, I know the guy's name, but I can't remember it right now, but he was a college student who came up with this idea a few years ago of basically going without anything. I mean, no books, like this is nothing. You know, I think the only thing you can do is drink decaffeinated beverages, water, He even does a food fast. Um, you write and you can walk and mm. be outside. And that's pretty much it for wow. 24 hours and sleep. And I've done them a couple of times. I highly recommend it. It sounds them. great, except for the caffeine fast. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's always one thing for yeah. everybody that they're like, I can do it all except that. But um, what's so interesting, my daughter and I did it together this past spring, and she was really, he, he recommends doing it when you don't have any motivation for your life. Mm. Because once, she said maybe four hours into her day, she was really really frustrated that she couldn't get to her schoolwork. So like there's something that happens when we don't have any stimulation that kind of comes up from inside of us. That's like, I have to, like, I can't wait to organize that closet. I've got to finally write that short story. And that kind of, that kind of life and those ideas and that work come from deep inside of us and they don't really have any space to Mm -hmm. breathe. Mm -hmm. Um, much less to execute when we are constantly feeding our brain. Mm. So, so how does that manifest itself then? Okay, dopamine fast, great, love the idea. Um, but I know a lot of your work, and not only with your own children, and in, I, I don't know, do you see families, and, and how, how young do you in your counseling? I, right? I do all adults. Okay, all adults. But I know in your studies and things, I, things that, that you've written, um, I don't want to go f- too far into this, but depression, suicide, um, you know, it, that has skyrocketed all over the place in the last 10 years. What is going on there? What's the connection to media? I'm a big uh, technology person. I make my living on media. I'm very pro-technology. I'm, I, I love to talk about things that are coming out in the future and the positive things of it. But I'm not ignorant either to know that, that something is going on mm-hmm. with society and media and technology and the internet. Have you done a, a lot of research in that area? Yeah, I've done a lot and talk about the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. Right. <laughs> so I now know more and less than I've ever known before. Mm-hmm. Um, sitting across the silver table. <laughs> so um, 
There's a lot of pieces to it. I think probably the easiest one for everyone to get their mind around is just that it's too much. Just literally, our, we're taking in so much information all of the time, being advertised in so many ways. I mean, I was looking at a recipe and it was like, you know, feeling like I was getting some sort of brain shocks with these mm-hmm. ads that kept popping up and they're always really gross <laughs> and I'm right. making food and I'm like, this is grossing me out. Right, right. <laughs> Some picture of a liver that's like, yeah. is this happening to your liver? <laughs> <laughs> you um, won't believe what this person right, looks right. like now. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think there's, I mean, what a lot of the research is showing is just our brains were not made to take in that much information for as many hours a day as it's happening. And there's there's a really neat book called The World Outside of Our Heads. And the beginning of that book, he walks through the average person's day and how many just advertisements they see. Thousands. Yeah. So I think just our brains are having to filter through information all the time in order to make sense of what is what we need, right? I don't need that information I do. And so I think they're just on overdrive with the way that we're taking in media. So that's a basic one. Um, so that's the side of would be the harms of media. Let's just say it's the amount could have detrimental effects. But then um, on top of that, the I keep telling any, I supervise therapists and I get to do trainings with therapists and I will say I think therapy is going to be more and more, the future of therapy will be people's basic needs, hmm. which we've not ever had to address in a privileged population before. What does that mean? Are you getting sleep? Mm. Have you eaten three meals today? Have you had a conversation with the people you're in your house with? Have you done your laundry? Do you have food in your refrigerator? Um, Things you used to do in social work. And these normal things um, that most people engage in on some level, are they're not being done in, in part because of the media consumption? Or I mean, I think that the time and energy that it takes to navigate that um, there's, oh, there's so much, mm-hmm. there's so much. But one of them is that we, when we're on our devices, we leave our bodies, which you've experienced, everybody's experienced it. So we, there is scientific evidence now that I don't know how they can show this, but that shows we physic we mentally go to another place. Mm-hmm. So we dissociate from right. our bodies. So we're not feeling we're, we're getting all this stimulation and information and we're not feeling like, oh, I'm really hungry right now. Or, oh, it's time for me to go to bed. We can stay up and binge watch way easier than if we turn it off, we'd fall asleep. Mm-hmm. But we could stay up three hours and watch it. So that's this other part of our brain that um, a lot of our media accesses. Whereas things like, I need to remember to pay that bill. Or, oh, yeah, I've got to get that at the grocery store. I need to remember to have time to go to the grocery store. All of us have experienced pulling out of our little digital space. That's, that's reality, meaning the real world of I've got to do these things, do these things. But you're saying when someone goes into the media space, they leave that world and go into another reality. Yeah. They're in another reality where time is different. Mm. Um, and when you get back out, it takes a long time to reorient to what the things are that you need and the preparation that needs to be done for the things that you need. And a lot of times we're just out of time. We're running late. Mm. We're going to skip that meal. We're going to... Not pay that bill. (laughs) Not pay that bill, right? Or pay the overdue fee. Mm. But I think what's 
what's confusing about it is that when we're on our devices, all of us are doing something that matters to us most of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it's just scrolling through Instagram, that's probably really connecting to, I want to be updated on what's going on in the world Mm -hmm. and my friends' lives. I want to feel like I belong and I want to be seen. So we start my, um, I guess, criticism or maybe the big question that I have for all of us right now is when we get in those devices, we think that we're actually can, can finish that, meet that need. Right. Can satisfy. But it's, it's never ending. And at the same time in real life, these things actually do have a satisfying, whether it's I finished cooking a meal or Mm -hmm. I finished, um, I actually went and saw a friend and had coffee with them inherently in those are this sense of completion and satisfaction, which I think we need so desperately as humans. And when we don't get, we're going to experience depression and anxiety if our human needs are being neglected. Mm, that's, that's fascinating. That's interesting. Um, do you see, talk to me a little bit about the depression and the suicidal thoughts. I know that there's a lot that goes with that, but um, I, I, I see a, a connection and I can see how it can happen with people of, you know, getting consumed and, and it's easy to look at the middle school girl and say, oh, she didn't get enough likes on Instagram. And so she's depressed. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's mm-hmm. like, that's a simple illustration to see. Uh, but how does that play out in the 30 year old, the 40 year old, even the 50 year old in media? Is it the same effect going on many times or what, what, what is your thoughts on that? Oh, I have so many. <laughs> okay, so um, we'll start with the, the phase of development where in adolescence is when you're creating your identity, mm-hmm. you know, or at least as best as you know. That's the identity phase mm-hmm. of development. And I think when um, the more and more time and community that is experienced through social media, the more narrowly what is acceptable it is. Like when I went to high school, there was always a lunch table with the cool kids, right? That they looked a certain way, they did a certain thing, and that's how you knew what was going to do the best in this environment. So social media does a very similar thing. There's, there's the cool kids at the cool table. They look this way, they do these things. And I, what I have observed from my conversations with adolescence is that that gets so narrowly defined Mm. and there isn't a lot of room for all of the personalities and all of the, um, you know, even just a a little introvert who doesn't want to post everything Mm -hmm. about their life. Um, so I think there's a part of the box getting too small during identity formation And if you think that you have to be this certain way to be accepted by society and you think social media is society, I think that's where the suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. comes from is I can't ever be this thing and this world doesn't want me as I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure I know who I am because I haven't had enough space, you know, to explore without pretty significant consequences. Yeah. Yeah. The isolation, I I feel like there's a, there's a false, um, there's a false reality of, 
I'm connected to all these things and people and ideas and networks, and yet I'm alone. I don't have the human connection that I really long for or even know that I need. Yeah. Um, One of my friend's daughters just got back from a trip to New Zealand. She d- she's doing a gap year, and it was this big adventure trip, and they um, didn't have any phones with them. And she said in two weeks with a group of 18 and 19-year-olds, she knew them better than people she had known since middle school. Mm. And she said it's 100% because there were no phones around. So they, they had to. If they wanted connection, they had to get it from each other. And that's, I mean, that's what I'm hearing from so many people is this very light, like I know everything that's going on with everyone's life, but as I say, you can only really fit about 20% of who you are into a post or even a text. And so there's this 80% of you that isn't getting to be known or experienced. And then this 80% of the other person that isn't getting known or experienced, but yet so much effort being put into connecting that mm. isn't delivering mm-hmm. the way that it did when we were kids. Right. And when you invested in a relationship, it became a relationship. Mm. What are some of the other things in the book? Uh, I know it's a, it's a small book. It's not, uh, but talk to me about how that book came about, what, what's in the content. Um, we're going to talk about how people can get it at the end of the show, but talk a little bit about what was the birth, the writing of that. So we had, what did, wow, that's a good question. Um, I was doing a lot of talks about this and everybody at the end would say, do you have something to tell us what we could do? Like just some sort of, almost like a handout. I was basically creating a handout at the end of a talk that people mm-hmm. could take with them to know what to do. Um, I, I, I am also a really big fan of technology. Um, and I try, it's, it's hard kind of to, to suss out right. like um, what I'm talking about. I kind of trust the listener to understand there are consuming addictive forms of technology and there are tools and resources and technology. Mm-hmm. And I like to think of it, are you using your technology or is your technology using you? And usually those are different, you know, platforms <laughs> like a podcast for instance is one of the most ethical social media technologies that mm-hmm. exist it's very pure it's it's what it is right um and then there are others that are and people know the ones i can't get off to of some degree, yeah, yeah i'm manipulative my dad is being gathered i'm you know being fed um i'm being fed what to think and what to do next and um that's what I think it's Tristan Harris that calls it your, when your timeline's being hijacked. Mm. Like you should always be able to decide what you want to do and how long you want to mm. do it when you're engaged with technology, and that's how you know mm. it's that's humane good. technology. So, humane technology, humane I like technology. that. Um, so, okay, I'm trying to remember where we were. About the origins of the there. book and so, the content. The, the guy who helped me to print the books, he said, you've got to make a little book. You've got to make a little book. People aren't reading big books and your topic that you're talking about, people need to, you know, just what you said about the 140 characters mm-hmm. or less. He said, you need them to be able to stand there, open it up, read a page and grasp mm-hmm. a concept. I was like, okay. But during the writing of it, um, I tried to really distill it down to what I believe heals. So I 
I believe our many, many things, not to be just focused on media, but that specifically the way that we engage with our personal media is a, a huge, um, let's say it's a deterrent from us getting what we need for our mental health. If we're made to have mental health, like in our, in our natural state, we're going to be mentally healthy. And then things happen that impede that. And I feel like media is one of those. And so my focus has always been on what can we do to heal? So I'm, I already believe we've been traumatized by this. Mm. A lot of people don't think they've been traumatized by it or might think they've been traumatized by it in a little bit. So I have used all the things that we know heals trauma and I'm trying to apply it specifically to kind of answering, okay, if this has messed up our brains and bodies, what can we do to heal from it? So I, I believe we were made to heal and mm. I believe that real life has almost all the components for healing that we need, but we have to have access to that. What, what would be the, eth- the positive use of technology? Uh, they're really endless. Um, they're endless. Like one of the things that I love the most is wa- watching my kids navigate their social media worlds is very different than me. I'm not on social media. I don't want to be on social media. And I'm very dedicated to creating a life that doesn't need it. However, my kids' lives are so interwoven because most of their friends are. That's how they find their friends. That's how they see their friends. And so what we talk about a lot is is making social, your social media encounters something in your real life. So if you saw a friend that you're so happy to see and you didn't realize they'd been traveling, call them, go on a coffee date mm. with them. Like that gives you a moment to go, I wouldn't have thought of them if I hadn't seen it and now make it something, mm. which is kind of the relational version of a Pinterest. Like you could, you can look at Pinterest for 10 years and never make one thing, you know, or do one thing. So I think technology gives us this opportunity to create things in our real life that right. is infinite, but we have to turn it into something real and not just get caught in the consumption. Yeah. Cycle. The consumption of it. I, I read, I read a book a few years ago called, uh, Rengen, and it stood for Renaissance Generation. And the premise of this sociologist slash psychologist, I don't remember which one she was, but this has been a few years now. She says, we are entering a space where there is more art, there are more mus- patrons of museums, there's more films, there's more sculptures, there's more paintings than any other time in history. And her, her premise was there is a generation, a Renaissance generation, because of access to technology and knowledge and wisdom, much like the first Renaissance was a result of the printing press and uh, information being disseminated. So I think that's an interesting perspective, but you have to take it and then create with yeah, the information and, that you're given. And I'm very curious when that book was written, because I felt that. I think know, it was like oh nine, oh ten, somewhere around there. Because I, I mean, I remember feeling just like everything in my life had come alive, and these possibilities of things I could mm-hmm. do and participate in. That was just, I felt that that beautiful renaissance. And when I was introducing my kids to technology, that's what I thought I was introducing them mm-hmm. to. You know, was more of that learning mm-hmm. and expression. And I mean, when my daughter was in 
fifth, mm. I can't remember how old she was. She was in elementary school. She Googled, she was at a friend's house. And now, mind you, she did not have a phone of her own at this time. This was way before that was controversial. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, somebody had a phone and it wasn't charged. And there was no charger at the house that matched the charger. So my daughter got on the family's computer and Googled how to charge a phone without a charger. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like that is so incredible to me. Like to me, that's the magic of the internet and technology is when you have to think hard enough to search for something no one's ever, you know, a question no one's ever mm -hmm. thought to ask. So do you want to know how to do it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so you take a quarter put it on the screen, you take the quarter and you take a flathead nail, lay it on top of the quarter and put it in the sun and it acts as a solar panel and will charge your phone. No way. <laughs> that's fascinating. So to me, that's like what I say to my kids. That's a great science uh, like, lesson. Yeah, you can do anything. Like we have resources that you can do absolutely anything you want to do. You can learn anything you want to learn. Mm. My nephew takes classes at MIT. He's not in college. He takes classes at MIT online just because he wants to for fun. Mm. So it's, sure. it's endless as sure. long as you're in charge. You're in charge and you apply that. A um, couple more things and then and I, know you, I know you've got to go, but what do you think about this concept of, um, I think we have to have a healthy perspective and philosophy, theology, whatever you want to call it, uh, about the actual technology tools themselves. You know, one of the things that frustrates me, maybe the frustrate's not the right word, but concerns me is when I hear people all the time saying, well, the iPhone and a computer and an iPad, those are just tools, they're inanimate objects, and they're just neutral. And I, I disagree with that fully because a tool is something... Um, for instance, I can, I can take a shovel and I can dig a hole with it and I can build, I can use it to dig a well for somebody who needs water. I can dig a foundation for a schoolhouse in an impoverished area. I can do really good things with that. I can also take that shovel and kill someone and bury them. Now, that, saying, that is an example of saying, well, it's just a tool that you can use for good or bad. Mm -hmm. What we're missing, though, is that when I use that shovel and I'm digging a hole to bury someone or to make something, it does something to my body. It either gives me a bad back, it makes my muscles sore, or it builds them up. And if I use it every day, I am going to transform myself in a way that's more than a neutral tool just I'm using for good or bad. It's actually affecting me as a person. Interesting, yeah. So... We have to treat our technology, I think, in the same way to say that it's not just some inanimate object that's good or bad, or it actually, um, the technology itself, the tools are connected to us deeper than we will willing to admit. And we must acknowledge that to some degree. Have In your research, have you found that through any of these tools, whether it be the coming virtual reality, uh, what we've learned about cell phones, what we've learned about social media or Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Has there been any studies about 
changing of us as human beings, yeah, of changing our brains, actual changing our bodies, uh, making us better, making us sick. Have you studied yeah. any I of mean, that stuff? Definitely the, the jury is out that it, it does change our brains for sure. And, it, and that depends a lot on the age you are when you use it, which is mm. why there are so many people concerned and advocating for um, kids not having apps in particular at a young age during that time that the skull hasn't fully developed and all that information is getting into a very tender little brain. But, um, okay, you asked about what, brain change. Yeah. Oh, okay, this is another interesting mm -hmm. piece that I'm happy you brought up because it's one of my favorite things to talk about with um, anxiety and depression in particular. We have a lot of emotional reactions to the things that we see on our devices. And some of them are programmed to make us feel strong feelings because that really serves a lot of advertisers well. And we stay on our devices longer when we're upset because we're looking for something on the device to relieve us. Like, so that really negative thing, I'm going to keep scrolling until I see something positive. And the longer we stay on our devices on many social media platforms, the more money those platforms make. So it serves them very well for our emotions to be um, heightened. I want to think of a better word for that. But what's interesting is when we're angry, scared, sad, whatever feelings come up when we see certain posts, we um, physiologically are made for some type of expression mm. of that. Like if I'm scared, I'm supposed to run or fight. Right. Mm -hmm. If I'm sad, I'm supposed to cry. Like I have these physical, like this, it's really just stress. All those feelings are just stress inside your body. And our bodies are made to physically expel and express them in some way. And when we stay in our device, our body's never getting a chance to let that just move mm. through it. So that's why I think the we was such a brilliant mm -hmm. use of technology because it combined movement and the you know, games and stuff. And it's just physical activity. Yeah. The physical. I think there's out. a huge, there's a huge opportunity that with VR coming, um, just yeah. the whole like entering into, uh, another, I mean, that's a whole nother can of worms, but entering into a new reality, uh, with our brains and our whole bodies, um, uh, which yeah. is fascinating. There's some interesting psychological studies that have been done on that for uses for therapy. A yeah. VR for uses of therapy. I don't know if you've seen any of that, but that's interesting. Just barely. Yeah. I, I, I'm overwhelmed with the technologies that are already here. Yeah. <laughs> I'll look at that one. I'll be yeah. like, I, I can't go there yet. <laughs> I can't go there yet. Last question. Um, for parents that might be listening or parents of young kids or those that are expecting or have kids, what is the one or two things, a piece of advice that you would give parents? Because navigating this whole world of, I mean, it's not going away. Um it is here to stay. It is part of, like, for instance, at my kid's school, um, my youngest, he is required to do everything on an iPad, all of their work, all of yeah. studying, the, he brings it home, they give him one, everything is done. So it's not going away. But what, what, what are a couple of things you would say to parents? So I, I'm really happy that you said that because it's one of the most common things people say is this is not going away. We've got to figure out how we're going to deal with it. 
And one of the things that I really want to bring into the conversation is our human limitations aren't going away. Mm. At least probably in our lifetime, we're, we're not evolving fast enough mm-hmm. to adapt to what's coming at us. And that, that might change for future generations. But for right now, what we're dealing with, these human limitations are probably going to continue to exist. And I love to look at um, the concept one of my favorite concepts to study and to live is flow. Mm. And flow is when your um, challenges and your resources are increasing at the same pace. Mm-hmm. And depression and anxiety happen when your challenges are exceeding your resources. Mm. And so I really, rather than necessarily having the conversation of how old do they need to have before they have a phone? You know, what do I do if they're on their iPad doing their homework? Mm -hmm. And then how do I distinguish that from when they're playing whatever game, whatever is to that your, your children's behavior is pretty consistently communicating to you whether their challenges are too much, whether they have enough resources to face their challenges. Mm -hmm. And very, very few of those resources that are needed in childhood can be gotten through a screen. They all need to happen in real life with the screen being uh, like you're talking about doing homework. I'm, I'm putting in information that I've learned, you know, with the screens being, um, don't even want to say candy, but like the things a child needs to be okay involve almost 100% of learning. I've just learned this has movement involved Mm. in it, which has been a criticism to classroom lecturing for a long time. Um, So if your child is exhibiting any symptoms that are bringing you concern that don't seem to match their situation, pay attention to their resources. Are they getting enough rest? Are they getting enough time off screen? Are they getting enough time alone? Are they getting enough food? Do they, are they getting to participate in stuff like like cooking or um, digging in the dirt, things that physically give your body, I did work, I got food, I, I completed something that they can experience tangibly. It's very frustrating to, to not, if you are able to, as my niece can do, build a huge museum with a few taps on a cool app, that doesn't deliver, right? Like. You, you just tapped on a screen. So physiologically, you didn't get the satisfaction of building and moving something. And it builds up in a lot of behavior problems. That's interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. It, it goes to this concept that I, I had a guest on a few, few episodes back. She's uh, really, really into to meditation and presence. And one of the things that I took, one of the big takeaways for me from that that I learned was, and you as a therapist know this, I'm sure, is that the things that are impactful and transformative and very memorable in our lives are those times when we were fully present, mind, body, soul, heart, whatever you want to call it, and focused all of those three things together in Mm -hmm. that event. Mm -hmm. And the example is, I can remember where, and I'm sure you can too, where were you when 9-11 happened? Mm -hmm. You can remember that moment when you heard it. I can remember the Challenger explosion. Um, I can remember other things in my life, good and bad. Uh, And there's many 
sections of my life that I can't remember anything. You know, they're just, I know they're there, but I can't recall them. Um, And her premise, and I think you would probably agree too, it's because at those moments we were fully present Um, and mind, our body was present and engaged, our brain was fully engaged and our hearts and our souls and whatever it is. And being able to, and I think that's the value of meditation, but um, that seems to speak with what you're talking Mm -hmm. about. Like Mm -hmm. um, it's one thing to see and swipe on a screen, but if your body is not involved, if your heart is not involved, your full attention, that's not something that's going to um, change you, not anything you're going to remember. And most of all, could be detrimental with a long diet of that, Correct. right? Right, absolutely. Is that what you're saying? I mean, I am, and a lot of the the addictive mm. media accesses a part of your brain that also doesn't require you to think, mm. so your mind isn't even involved in a lot of that. Mm. Explain that. So, if I'm just scrolling, an example is I stayed up one night playing solitaire on my iPad for three hours after my family went to bed. Mm. I don't stay up three hours after my family goes to bed, but I could sit there and hit and swipe, and it it wasn't me thinking like my present self. It was a part of my brain that was just getting Mm. great feedback and could stay awake doing that forever Mm. while my body and mind and heart were very tired. Mm. That's interesting. Well, that's pretty benign. But. Yeah, yeah, no, but uh, but the point is, you know, there are kids and adults and people of all ages doing that exact same thing with media. Some people do it with with film. Some people do it with um, social media. Some people do it with games, like you said. And nothing is wrong with those things if you're engaged and it's a it, it is a way that an you can relax and right. experience or something that you do with other people, but. Um, how do people get a hold of you and learn more about your work? So I have a website called mediatrauma.com and then the book is available on the Refuge Center's site, therefugecenter.com. Okay, great. And if somebody wanted to reach out to you, they just go to mediatrauma.com and all your info. And if they're in and around um, Nashville, is that something, are you still practicing? Yes, still I see clients. And they can off that site too, mediatrauma.com, they can find you. Yeah. Sure great, can. great. Well, Jenny, thank you for taking the time, and uh, I appreciate your um, your thoughtfulness in this. I think there's a lot of voices today that are uh, a lot of opinions. There's a lot of people trying with um, vested interests. I think um, whether it may be negative or positive, and it can be confusing because uh, the temptation is just to run away and cut it off and not deal with it. And I don't think that's the answer necessarily. Uh, maybe for a fast or a rest, but thank you for being thoughtful and um, giving and creating those resources for us. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. And we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Bye.